Last week, I, I did a funeral for a guy who died suddenly on Saturday, last Saturday. And I had talked to him on Friday, and he was fine, sounded great. But on Saturday, he suddenly died. It reminded me of the uncertainty of life. If you think about it, I could be doing your funeral next week. Or you could be going to my funeral next week. Uh, we really don't know. Now, lest you say I'm being overly dramatic, let me share some stories from recent headlines to show how uncertain life can be. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a condo collapsed in Florida and 60 people were killed. I mean, that, just a condo collapsing. It's your house. You're sitting at home and the whole building falls down on top of you. The president of Haiti was assassinated in his sleep early Wednesday morning. Now, Haiti is not what you would consider a, a safe country, but if there's one person in the country you would think would be safe in their sleep, it would have been the president in the presidential palace, but he wasn't. Three people were found dead at a Georgia golf course. Um, parents in California a few nights ago caught a sex offender climbing into their daughter's window in the middle of the night. And of course, these are just ones I found. You probably know your own. The, the news is filled with stories that just show that life is uncertain. We don't know for sure what is going to happen. And, and this becomes a problem because... As humans, we crave certainty. We crave security. But the reality is, security and certainty are, are really their myths. And therefore, it's kind of foolish to make them any sort of focus in our lives. Now, let me clarify. I'm talking about earthly security, earthly certainty. Those are both myths. And if you think about it, you, you'll see I'm right. Let's say you want to be as secure as you can in your house, and so you buy the most high-tech alarm system you can buy. And you get an M60 machine gun, and you mount it so it can shoot at every window and every door, and you prepare for every possible contingency of a burglar. But tonight, while you sleep, a mouse could chew through a wire, hit the hot part of it, burst into flames, and the house burn down around you while you sleep. Think about when you're driving down the road. You're driving down the road at 70 plus miles an hour. And then there are people who are just, what, 18 inches away, two feet away, also hurtling down the road in the opposite direction of you at 70 plus miles an hour. How, how much off do they have to veer before they're coming directly at you? What happens if they're texting and driving? What happens if they drop one of their earbuds and they reach down to grab it? How, how minorly distracted do you have to be to not to even notice that somebody's coming before it's suddenly too late? You can eat healthy. You can stay physically fit. You can have regular checkups. And yet the right set of circumstances can still cause you to have a heart attack or a stroke and die suddenly. You can be Freddie Frugal who wisely saves and plans for his retirement only to watch a corrupt official or a corrupt corporate Officer, drain your life savings. There could be a major economic catastrophe tomorrow to devalue the dollar to such an extent all of our hard work, all of our savings is worthless. Now today, obviously, I'm talking about happy thoughts and how to have them. Um, not really, but there is a point. The point is earthly security, earthly certainty are myths. Because ultimately, we cannot control anything. I mean, we have almost no control 
over anything that happens in our world. Even even like with your own body. You cannot stop your heart from attacking. Your stroke from happening. No matter what you, we have almost no control over what happens in the world around us. And so if we're going to look for certainty, if we're going to look for security, we're going to have to look beyond anything this world offers. So today what I want to do is I want to show us what we can be certain about so we can refocus our lives on living for what matters most. So open your Bible if you haven't already. Revelation 11 and 14 should be page 955 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, the One who is and who was, Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints. And those who fear your name, the small and the great. And to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Title of the message this morning is Certainties in an Uncertain World. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We need you today. Help us to lay aside whatever cares of life we may have brought in so that we can focus on what you have for us from your word. This time is holy. This time is important. So, Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Let your Word and Spirit work together in our lives to to encourage us if we're discouraged, to strengthen us if we're weak, to heal our hearts if they're broken, to convict us if we're falling back in our service and our devotion to you. To be a compass if we're beginning to stray in the way in which we should go. To be a light if we're walking in darkness. To be a hammer if we have erected strongholds to keep our minds from receiving what your word says. We we want your word to work powerfully in us today, O oh God. We haven't gathered to just check a box and say, I went to church. We've gathered to meet with Almighty God and to study his word and let his spirit Move among us and to work in us. And so have your way in each one of our hearts today and do what you know needs to be done. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This particular passage gives us a glimpse into the happenings in heaven as the seventh trump sounds. Now, here is what I see in this passage. 
We don't see the earthly events of the seventh trumpet sounding, right? So verse 15, the seventh angel sounds. He blows the seventh trumpet. But we don't see what happens on earth until Revelation 14, 14 through 20. And then it skips until Revelation 16 and then kind of goes on to the end of Revelation 21, 27. So while all the stuff from Revelation 14, 14 through 20, 16, 1 through 21, 27 is happening, most of that is, is showing us the earthly view of the seventh trump. And while all of that is going on on earth, then all of this is going on in heaven. Right, so let me explain why I believe this is what we see. In verse 15, the seventh angel sounds, and we're told that Jesus then will reign forever and ever. Right, So in this, the seventh angel sounds, and Jesus now is actively taking charge of the earth and ruling. Right, There's, there's no more God of this world who deceives and leads people astray. Right? There, there is no more of the beast reigning on earth. There is just Jesus. He has permanently dethroned the God of this world, permanently dethroned the Antichrist, and he is ruling. This is the end. In verse 17, we're, we're given a, a formula for God, which we've seen before. Look at what it says. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and the one who was. Now, we've seen this over there's something similar to this over and over. But there's notice there's something different. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is, who was, who is to come. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who was and who is to come. Who is, who was, and is to come. The four living creatures, each of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, 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 it's the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now, this formula, the one who is, who was, and is to come, is to show that God is the eternal, sovereign ruler of all things. In the, in the beginning, He was, and He was ruling. In the present, He is, and He's ruling. In the time to come, He's coming, and He is ruling there as well. But here, there is no is to come. He is the God who was, and He is the God who is, but He is not the God who is to come anymore. Why? I think it's because there is no more to come. This is the end. And then in verse 18... We talk about the the nation's rage and they praise God for raising the dead so they can be judged. Well, when is the resurrection of the dead and the judgment? Well, it's in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Even the language here is similar to what we look at in that final judgment, the small and the great. Then it talks about He's going to destroy those who destroy. This is a a final judgment upon those who have rebelled against him and who have rejected him, which is very similar to the idea of people being cast into the lake of fire at the end of Revelation 20, uh, 11 through 15. And it's called the second death. So what, what I believe here we're seeing is a heavenly view of all of these events that take place in later chapters. When, 
when the world is coming to an end and the judgments of God are falling upon the earth, this is what's going on in heaven. But the key truth in the passage, what we're going to look at today, is what we see at the last of verse 15. He will reign forever and ever. This is what we can be certain about in this life. We can be certain Jesus will reign. In an uncertain world, this is an absolute certainty. In a world we cannot control, there is a king over kings and a lord over lords. And he will rule. He he will rule now. He did rule in the past. And all the way up to the very end, he will rule and he will reign. And if, if we are moving into difficult times in the world, as we push into the events of Revelation, we had better know our God reigns. We had better be certain of the fact Jesus reigns. Because anything else we're going to try to hold on to a certainty, it is going to fail. We're going to to later see economic collapse in the world. We're going to see a collapse of politics, a collapse of governments, a collapse of, of families as husbands and wives and children turn against each other. The certainty, the only certainty, is the certainty Jesus will reign. And in light of this certainty, there are three others that flow out of this that we must be certain of if we're going to be faithful to Jesus unto the end. Be certain Jesus wins. Verse 15, a loud voice cries out from heaven and says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. The idea of, of kingdoms, a kingdom of the world, is, is essentially saying that all the kingdoms who have ruled throughout history have actually only had one source of power and authority. right? Because remember, when we get into Revelation, as we start to see the kingdom of the beast rise, all of the nations of the earth turn against the people of God. All of the nations of the earth become enemies of the Lamb. And this becomes clear as all the leaders of the nations cede their power within an hour... To the, to the Antichrist in order to serve him. So essentially, and this is a, a powerful thought. Every evil demonic power we see in the book of Revelation that opposes the disciples of Jesus in the time of Revelation. In the in form of governments and things is not significantly different than the opposition governments, disciples of Jesus have faced in the past and are facing now. There there is one power behind the evil powers of the world. And it is Satan. It is the Antichrist. Uh, And so the kingdom of the world, so the power of the beast, the power of the Antichrist, has been crushed. And Jesus reigns over him. What we learn is the kingdom of the world 
can reign with impunity now, but they have no power to, against the, the reign of the Lord and against His Christ. Jesus wins. And Jesus will reign. Now, they do try to oppose. Look at verse 18. The nations were enraged, right? And, and it pictures, it, it's very similar to Psalm 2. The language is similar to Psalm 2, where it talks about the nations raving, raging and, and the people plotting a vain thing. Now, it, it's a cool picture because the vain or the worthless thing the people and the nations are plotting is to throw off the reign of God and of His anointed King. And so, what Psalm 2 prophesies about, we see actually come literally to pass in the time of Revelation. The nations rage. They try to stop the reign of Christ coming. But they have no power. Again, the Psalms told us about this. I love this. This is how God responds to the nations raging against Him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs at their futile attempts to thwart his will. And then he goes out and does exactly what he planned to do. No one can stop him. No one can undo him because Jesus wins. This is what we see in the book of Revelation as a whole, but specifically in this particular passage. Verse 17, God is called the Lord, the Almighty. And the idea of Him being the Almighty is He has all the power. But this isn't just a, a cool sounding phrase because the Almighty takes His great power and then He begins to reign. Right? There's no, there's no struggle. There's no anything. It's just He determines it's time to reign and He reigns. And He begins to reign forever and ever. It is an everlasting kingdom. There is no end to it now or forever. We get to Revelation 21. We'll see the new Jerusalem coming down. This is the end. The kingdom that comes down in that day is an everlasting kingdom. There will never be another rebellion against God or His anointed Christ. There will never be any more pain or sorrow or consequences of sin in the world. There will never be sin. These things will be forever conquered. We will live in God's perfect eternal kingdom. We can be certain of this because... Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And so Jesus will reign. Secondly, be certain judgment is coming. We're told in, in verse 18, the nations are angry. But God's wrath has come. And it's time for the dead to be judged. And again, I, I love the picture because we read it quickly and easily. And in the picture is it happens easily. The nations are enraged at the fact Jesus is going to reign forever and ever. The nations are enraged because God is going to take his almighty power and begin to reign. But their anger does nothing. God's wrath comes and it's time for the dead to be judged. God just he just does what it is he wants to do. Now, the idea of the dead being judged here is, like much of Revelation, it is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Some everlasting life. It's a disgrace and everlasting contempt. This resurrection and judgment 
for everyone. Some will rise to everlasting life. Some will rise to everlasting contempt. God's word describes two kinds of judgment. There is the judgment of the righteous and there is the judgment of the wicked. These two judgments have different purposes. Judgment for the righteous determines rewards. Look at verse 19. Or I'm sorry, it's still verse 18. So the the nations were enraged, your wrath came, time for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. So this judgment for the righteous is a time to reward them for their faithfulness to Jesus. Now God's word tells us about the judgment for the righteous. And I want us to look at it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. Page 871. And look at verse 10. I'll read verses 10 through 15, then we'll come back and talk about it. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But each person must be careful how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. For the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet is only through fire. So, this is a, an important passage. right? So, first, there's a foundation that's been laid in our lives. If you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus Christ, the foundation of Christ, verse 11, has been laid in your life. And on the moment you repented, the moment you believed, that foundation was laid. And every, really every moment of your life since then, you and I, we have been building upon that foundation. Right? And we're to, to build on the foundation and we're to be careful how we build on the foundation. Because we can choose what we build with. We can build with gold, silver, or precious stones. Or we can build with wood, hay, or straw. So we can, we can build with things that are precious or we can build with things that are perishable. But we, we are going to build each of us on that. And the day will come when each one's work will become evident because the day will declare it because there's going to be a, a judgment to reveal what our work is, what we have done with the life that had been given us in Christ. Now, this is probably not how it is, but this is the way I see it because it helps me to understand it. Uh, imagine there's like a, a great and Everything in our lives is taken and every action piled upon it. And, and all of these things are, are put here and, and it's just one thing after another. And, and there's just this big pile of stuff that's every thought and every word and every action we've done since we had repented of our sins and believed in Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's all piled up in the, over the grave. And then I picture Jesus like pushing a button and flames. <laughs> Shoot up from underneath it. And in that moment, 
it's going to kind of reveal what we used to build with. Because the gold, silver, and precious stones, that stuff is going to be purified and remain. But the wood, hay, and straw is going to be completely burned up. And, and to me, that's what I see. That's the way I see it. I, again, I, I doubt that's actually the way it will happen, but that helps me to imagine the scenario. But with the scenario, there are three really good truths you have to understand. Right? On this day, it will be me. It will be you. Right? Verse 13, each one's work. Every disciple of Jesus will stand before Jesus on this day. Right? No disciple is exempted. Every disciple will stand and our works will be revealed. This, this is you. This is me. Secondly, it will be me and Jesus. Each one of us will stand in this place of accountability alone with Jesus. Right? On, on the day, right? Verse 13, the, the day will show it. On the day, it will not matter what any other human on earth has ever thought about our lives. It will not matter what our spouse has said, our children, our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow church members, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It, it will not matter what anyone says about the quality of what we have done, how we have built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Their opinion about the lives we've lived and what we've built, whether it was gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay and straw, will not matter. And here's why this is important. It is disturbingly easy for us to allow the opinions of others to sway us in our service and devotion to Jesus. Some may tell us don't get too carried away with that serving and being devoted to Jesus. And they will try to, to calm us down. But they won't be here with us on this day. Others, when we feel convicted... Because we, we look at our lives and we're like, man, there is just a lot of wood, hay, and straw. And we, we share with someone. And they try to tell us, no, no, you, you do so much. And, and we know we don't, but we allow them to soothe our conscience. Guess what? They will not be here with us on this day. On this day, it will be me and Jesus. And your opinion about what I've done in my life will not matter. On this day, it will be you and Jesus. And no one else's opinion about what you have done with your life will not matter. It won't be you and Jesus and the person who discouraged you from taking it too far in your service to Jesus. They won't be there. It won't be you and Jesus and the person who soothed your conscience when the Spirit was convicting you. They won't be there. When everything, if everything burns up, we won't be able to say, but Fred told me I, I was a really wonderful Christian. I was really sold out to Jesus and I was doing all of these things. Tell him, Fred. Fred won't be there. And even if Fred was there, his opinion wouldn't matter. Jesus' opinion of what we build on is the only one that will matter on this day. And then it will be me, Jesus, and my works. <laughs> 
One of the last truths we need to see from this is the absolute nature of the accountability. Our works will be there. The fire will test it. And there will be an absolute revelation of what we have done with the life Jesus has given us. Again, social media makes it easy for us to pretend. There's no pretending. There will be an absolute revelation of what we have done. If we have built on the foundation of Jesus with all of our lives as wood, hay, and straw, every ounce of it will burn away and there will be nothing there as a stark testimony of what we did with the life Jesus gave us. Or, if you're a person that's really got a negative self-image, and you always think, I've never done enough, the pile remaining will testify, look at what you did for Jesus. But it will be this absolute truth about what was there. Now, This day doesn't determine heaven or hell, right? Look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. It is only through fire. The idea I get with this is, I mean, salvation isn't the issue here. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So if things burn up, it's like your house catches fire and all you get out in is in your pajamas. Everything else you had burned up, but you lived. Everything you did in your life basically burned up, but you were saved, so you still made it to heaven. Now, the question, though, is if salvation is not in in issue here, if it's not the point, what is the point of these rewards? Why? Go ahead and turn back to Revelation 11. Why will there be rewards for the righteous if it doesn't determine our salvation? We've talked about in Revelation 4 where the elders cast their crown at Jesus' feet. The casting of the crowns. I believe the elders represent believers of all time, disciples of Jesus of all time. And the casting of the crowns is symbolic of saying, I did this for you. Right? The crowns are things we... It's not going to be for us. right? We're not going to get to heaven. And it's like, look at this. I've got more crowns than you do. I'm better than you. It's, you and I, we're not going to be the focus in heaven. Jesus is. And so... Jesus is going to be revealed and we're going to cast our crowns at his feet. And it's a way of saying, I I did it for you. I I did these things for you. I, I was faithful because of what you had done for me. You were wonderful. And so I lived like this. Everything I did, I did because of who you are, because of what you had done. That is why the righteous want rewards. It's to cast them at his feet as a way of saying you are worthy. Of all this in my life. This is what you meant to me. This is what the judgment day for the righteous will be. But judgment day for the wicked. is very, very different. In the world in which we live now. The evil often prosper. And the righteous often suffer. We see this in so many ways. In our world we see it. We see it as abortion doctors live in mansions while the unborn victims of their murders are torn apart and put in medical waste bins. 
We see this with warlords in third world countries who oppress the masses to bolster their own power. We see this as violence of Jesus, violence against disciples of Jesus in parts of the world. We see this as rapists are let out of prison on technicalities. We see it in any number of ways nearly every day of our lives. And more often than not, the people who do it seem to get away with it. The psalmists talk about there is no sorrow in their death. There's no pain, no sorrow in their life, no pain in their death. And we see that. And we wonder, how can God be just when the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? We answer that question by realizing this life is not the end. This life is not all there is. There is coming a day when everyone will give an account to God. Look, the nations were enraged. The time for the dead to be judged. So there's the dead are raised and judged. The righteous. And then notice the last part. And to destroy those who destroy the earth. So there is a judgment that also comes for the wicked. And and once again, this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their wrongdoing. I'll put an end to the audacity of the proud, humiliate the arrogance of the tyrants. Evil will often abound in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Evil will often prevail in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Evil will often escape earthly justice in a fallen, sin-cursed world. But this life is not all there is. And while we may not see God's justice poured out upon the wicked, God's word assures us it will be. There will come a time when the wicked are held accountable for their sins, their crimes, and their wickedness. And their judge will not be a man who is sympathetic to their view. Their judge will not be a Congress who passes laws to make what they do okay. Their judge will not be any human, but will be almighty and all holy God. And there will be no loopholes. There will be no technicalities. The judgment for the wicked will be without mercy. It will be nothing but the pure justice of God. And again, as as the days get hard and wicked begins to prosper even more, this will be something we must be certain of. And we can be certain of it. Because Jesus will reign. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords will bring the wicked into judgment. And then thirdly, be certain of God's presence. Be certain certain Jesus wins. Be certain judgment is coming. Be certain of God's presence. Verse 19, the temple of God which is in heaven was open. And the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. There were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So in the midst of all of this we see The temple opened up and the ark become visible. And what we're seeing is the the really what in the temple days they would call the holy of holies being visible, being opened up for people to 
to come in to see it. And we know it's the Holy of Holies because in the earthly temple, that's where the ark was stored. And so this is opening and given an appearance to look into what so few people in the Old Testament ever got to see the that holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. The idea of the door being opened, I, I believe, is an invitation. An invitation for, for people to come into, for us as we read this, to know we're invited to go into the Holy of Holies, to go where the Ark is. And ultimately, being invited to the Holy of Holies isn't being invited to a place. It's being invited to a person. But what made the Holy of Holies the Holy of Holies wasn't the ark as a physical thing. It was the ark as the representative of the presence of God with the people. But what's being opened up here is now the fulfillment of getting to be with God fully is coming to pass. Right. So in the Old Testament, you have the, the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could go into only once a year. Then Jesus dies in the temple that separated, or the, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the most holy places, torn in half from top to bottom, opening it up, making it available for people to go into the presence of God. Hebrews 10. We come boldly into His presence. But it's only partial, because right now it's by faith and not by sight. God is here in His omnipresence, but not here in the way that He was in the holy place that He is in heaven. And the day is coming in which that veil being torn was the beginning, and now this is the completion, and we get to to move to where God is. We get to go from knowing God by faith to knowing God by sight. To go from experiencing God by faith to experiencing God by actually being in His presence, being with Him in that moment. The, the idea of the storms, the flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and the earthquake. This just reminds us of God's power and God's presence. When we looked at Revelation 4, we saw this. The one who sat upon the throne, there was lightning and flashes and thunder. All of that proceeded out of His throne. This also harkens back to Exodus 19 and 16, Exodus 20. When the, the Ten Commandments were given, God descended upon the mountaintop. And when God descended upon the mountaintop, there was thunder and lightning and, and the roar of God. And so this is, God is there. The opening is there. We're being invited in. And then in Revelation 21, 9-27, the city of God is symbolized as the Holy of Holies and and this is where disciples of Jesus will live forever. We live forever in the presence of God. Now when I say be certain of God's presence, I mean this in two ways. First, be certain God's presence awaits. Jesus is the pearl of great price worth more than anything we currently possess. Jesus is the treasure hidden in a field for whom we joyfully sell all that we have so that we can acquire Him. As disciples of Jesus, we get Jesus in the end of it all. Jesus is the great treasure, the great value, the great reward we get. Paul said it this way, Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted at loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost for the value or for the view Lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but mere rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul, when Paul says he, he lost all things, it was not a symbolic. Paul lost his job as a Pharisee. Paul lost his standing in the community. Paul lost his family. From what we can gather from Paul's life, Paul's family was probably wealthy. He lost family wealth. Uh, of course, we know from Paul's life he he lost an easy life because his life was filled with beatings and fastings and eventually martyrdom. But how did Paul feel about all the things he had lost? He counted them but mere rubbish. Now, I, I love the King James word there. The King James word there is is dumb because the Greek word is scubala, and that's what it refers to. It's not just trash. It's worse than trash. It's dumb. Think about it. Think how great Jesus must be if everything in your life you've ever had is dumb in comparison to Him. That's what Paul said. He had lost all of these things, but he got Jesus. And literally, Jesus was all he got in the trade. And all of that other stuff was was dumb in comparison to Jesus. This this is what awaits us. is Jesus. And, And Jesus is worth more than anything else this life has or anything else this life offers. Anything we lose or forsake or suffer in this life for the cause of Christ is dumb in comparison to gaining Jesus. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is what we get. Jesus. So no matter what it costs us, To be faithful unto the end, it's worth it because we get Jesus. Jesus awaits us at the end. Second thing I I meant about be certain of God's presence is be certain you'll be in God's presence. Right, The open holy of holies then in this day is only for those who are disciples of Jesus before this day. Right. I mean, it's once the seventh trumpet and and we'll see this later, the world shifts. And there's a judgment that comes. And there's a point in which it's it's too late to come to Jesus. The day of grace is over and the day of judgment has come. In order to experience Jesus, then. We need to be sure we are His disciples now. And so the question is, do you see Jesus in your life? But as you examine your life, do you see Jesus? God's Word says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you failed the test? Now, this is huge. This is, this is not my opinion. This is what God's Word says. So notice what God's Word doesn't say. It doesn't say, do, do you go to church? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, are you a, a good moral person? It doesn't say, have you been baptized? It doesn't say, are you a member of a church? It doesn't say, do you tithe? Gosh, it doesn't even say, did you ask Jesus into your heart? 
it says, examine your life and see if there's evidence of Jesus in your life. Is there evidence of Jesus in you? Things that that are are there just because of Jesus. Not, Not because you're older, right? There are things I don't do now that I did 20 years ago, but it's not because of Jesus. It's because I'm older and I'm hopefully wiser and I'm definitely more fragile and things hurt more than they did 20 years ago. So I don't do them, but that's not Jesus. That's just age. There are things I I don't do now. I didn't do 30 years ago, but it's because now I'm married. And it's not because of Jesus. It's because I have a wife and we have a wife. There are things that change and there are things I I don't do now that I, I did do 35 years ago. But it's because I have kids. Right. I mean, when when you these are just life changes and that's not Jesus. So I can't say, well, I've gotten older and more fragile and so I don't do things. That's Jesus. No, no, that's not the point. What in your life is just because of Jesus? It's not because of how your parents raised you. It's not because you've gotten older. It's not because you have more responsibilities. It is just because Jesus is in you. And every one of us should have multiple Multiple things. If Jesus is in us. The only people who came to Jesus and left unchanged were those who left without Jesus. The God of heaven taking human form, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, coming to live within us, dwelling in our hearts by Faith after we're saved does not leave us unchanged. And if it has left us unchanged, it's because Jesus is not in us. God's word says, if you do not see Jesus in you, evidence of Jesus, you have failed the test. To fail the test means you're not saved. And if you want to experience Jesus' presence, then you had better repent of your sin and believe on Jesus now. Because to experience Jesus then, you must have Him now. In many ways, the truths of the passage we've seen should reorient Our lives. Because if it's true, if it's certain, Jesus reigns. If it's certain, judgment comes. If it's certain, God's presence awaits. And this is all certain because Jesus reigns. How should we live? We should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The world offers us a plethora of things to live for. But if we live for those things, we make them our priority, our first in in, in life. We miss this. Because those things are. They're weak, they're frail. Again, when we get into Revelation, 
We're going to see governments fail. We're going to see economics fail. We're we're going to see everything fail but Jesus. So whatever we're living for, if it's not Jesus, it is foolish for us to live that way. It is ungodly for us to live that way. We must reorient ourselves so that we seek first the kingdom. And then everything else is secondary. So the question I want to leave us with is what changes do we, do you, do I, need to make to ensure we're seeking the kingdom of God first? Whatever those changes are, we need to make them now. Let's stand as I pray. Holy Father, we love You today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We rejoice to know Jesus reigns. That is a certainty. And Lord, let this reorient our lives in the ways it ought to. The world offers us so many shiny trinkets to devote ourselves to. So many loud voices to to follow after so many other influencers, value systems, worldviews. So, gosh, everything in the world is saying, listen to me, follow me, pursue me, believe me, devote to me. And other than Jesus, all of those voices are worthless. Give us ears to hear Jesus when he says, follow him. Let us be like Peter, James and John and drop our nets. Go follow him. The world of uncertainties, let us not be afraid because we know Jesus reigns. Because of that, we live faithful. We live fearlessly. We live confidently. Come what may. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.